This evening's talk is about investigation or discrimination of states. Investigation, discrimination of objects. With the underlying question being, what is the active aspect or active component of mindfulness that is the primary root for the arising of wisdom? What is it that enables us to move towards being a Buddha? Or as one of my Burmese teachers uh, used to say, what makes one a true heir of the Buddha? In response to this question, we'll begin with a a, a brief review of uh, mindfulness. So considering for a moment, as we discussed in our exploration of mindfulness uh, last week or last couple of weeks, have you ever had the experience of getting to know someone and finding out that they're not at all like your initial preconditioned perceptions and judgments of them were? Without mindfulness, we're very often caught unaware in our initial perceptions of and reactions to things because we're so often blindly run by our conditioned habitual ways. Without a mindful presence, we could say that our relationship to most all of our experiences like this, everything we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, everything we think is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thought patterns, our habitual ways of experiencing. What this means is that we're living at a distance from experience. We're living at a distance from life itself. And this could be kind of like a vicious circle that feeds itself, that feeds our mental fixations. Consequently, the grooves of habit etch deeper. And we're more and more often running on a kind of automatic pilot. And maybe not realizing that this is what's occurring. Or that, in fact, our life can be different than this. Mindful presence is a powerful way of changing our mind, changing our heart, and consequently changing the way we relate to ourselves, various people, things, situations. Connecting with an open-hearted interest and a focused, clear awareness is what's needed in all instances. And as the Buddha said, needed in all instances as a seasoning of salt in all sauces, was the Buddha's way of saying this. This is what begins and 
allows the process of release and transformation of our painful and all of our various unskillful habits. So you can see why the Buddha said that mindfulness is the first and overarching factor of our practice, the first and overarching factor of awakening, of enlightenment. As a basis for our uh, discussion uh, on investigation this evening, I'd like to repeat the short uh, definition of mindfulness that was offered uh, in the last couple of weeks in our exploration of mindfulness. Mindful awareness is about paying an extraordinary kind of attention, a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting attention to present moment experience. And when this extraordinary attention of mindfulness is coupled with the qualities of concentration and an open-hearted, interested, investigative exploration, we're gifted. We're gifted for a moment of maybe, or maybe for many moments, with what sometimes feels like the magic of moving out of delusion directly into reality. We're gifted with opening into some degree of experiencing and knowing the true nature of things. And for most all of us, it's not our usual way to be so present in the moment. And so we train the heart, we train the mind to just simply connect, feel, see, and know what is. What is this? How is it right here, right now? And so now beginning to look into investigation, discrimination of states, which is the second factor of awakening or the second factor of enlightenment. There's a term used in Buddhism, ehipasika. Come and see, ehipasika. It's an invitation from the Buddha to come and see. Not to come and believe, but to come and see for ourselves what's true. To come and see in this way requires a great willingness, interest, and courage that (coughs) includes a, a growing faith that blossoms out of our own experience. A willingness, interest, and courage to look directly, deeply, and honestly into the body, the mind, and the heart without relying on what others say is true through maybe what we've read or what we've heard. To come and see in this way requires that we don't settle into the inertia of our habitual perceptions of things, that we don't settle into our habitual relationships to experience, and that we don't continue to cling to the I, me, mine identification with our inner 
and our outer experience. Interest, willingness, and courage. These are the qualities that keep practice alive. From the very beginning of our practice and ongoing through all of the years of our practice. And I'd like to offer a Rumi poem that was given to me by a Buddhist nun, excuse me, many years ago. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust moat, lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on, upside down. The investigative and discerning aspect of our practice is fueled by the Buddha's invitation, Ehipasika. And it can be called the activity of mindfulness. It's what illuminates the object. Investigation has the potential to penetrate and illumine things, to light up bodily and mental experience right into their core, showing us both the individual characteristics and the universal essence or the ultimate reality of any given experience. This factor of enlightenment has the potential to dispel darkness, the darkness of not seeing, the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of ignoring how it is. Investigation is what leads to the elimination of bewilderment and confusion, the not seeing, the not knowing of delusion and ignorance. With this bright light of investigation and clear discernment, what is already and has always been present is then clearly seen and known, and confusion is dispelled. In our practice, investigation means that we experience directly without the mediation of concept. So, for example, and and please note that this example uh, can be a metaphor uh, for any physical or any mental phenomena that we experience. So the rising and falling movement of a breath, for instance, is known. Maybe you see it and you know it at the level of simply knowing in, simply knowing out, which is actually still based in the world of concept. We could say it's investigation without putting on the glasses. And then you put on the metaphorical glasses, connecting simply and directly with the actual rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or maybe at the nostrils or maybe through the whole body. Beginning now to move from conceptualizing the breath to directly experiencing it. Maybe beginning to feel and see and know maybe pressure 
or extension or roughness or smoothness or lightness, with any of these being felt and known as coming for a long time, happening for occurring for a long time or or occurring for a short time. And then you look through the microscope, maybe with the lowest power lens. The whole rising and falling movement of the breath is felt and known from its very beginning all the way through to its end. And you feel and know the whole falling movement from just just the falling movement from its beginning all the way to its end. And then maybe much to your surprise, you find that each rising, falling, and falling movement is not necessarily the smooth, ongoing experience that you've been used to. And even though it might be quite subtle, maybe you begin to feel it and know it very clearly as happening in tiny little segmented sensations rather than a smooth flow. And now you come even closer, getting more intimate with the experience of the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly. And you begin to see it just simply happening on its own, without you controlling it. The heart, the mind are relaxed and very interested in what's occurring, but not thinking about it. Just very simply present, receptive, and interested. And you relax more, even more. With interest growing even brighter, the microscope's power uh, powers up, the lens powers up. And the idea, the concept of breath falls away. The mind is settled, it's collected. Potential distractions have very little or maybe no distraction or no attraction. The subtle sensation of the rising and falling movement in the belly is felt and known, with maybe the most predominant experience being a particular, uh, very subtle flavor of maybe a very light vibration with each rising movement and a very light vibration with each falling movement. Who's breathing? And on it goes. Breath isn't what you thought it was, at least for the moments that you've stopped thinking about it and are just simply, directly, and mindfully present. Clearly discerning the experience with a very deep and complete trust in those moments. A trust that This is just enough. Nothing else needs to be done. The mind, the heart is open, receptive, spacious, and at ease in this direct and simple connection to experience as investigation and clear discernment continue to develop and the way of things continues to reveal itself. This is our practice. This is our training. In relationship to this factor of 
investigation and clear discernment, I'd like to spend a little bit of time now exploring our practice life and our life as a whole, as a creative process, with mindfulness, concentration, and particularly investigation being the roots from which stem the beautiful blossoms of wisdom and the creative energy of one's life that's freed up through the fruits of our practice. Practice itself is really quite akin to creative process. Practice, as, as we know, as you all know, is a vehicle for peeling away the layers of our habitual conditioned perceptions and reactions. And it's a vehicle that has great potential for revealing the interdependent and selfless nature of all physical and all mental phenomena. So for instance, whether it be the immediacy and spontaneity of a moment-to-moment visceral or mental connection in response to the relationship in response in relationship to the to the body moving in some way or by receiving what is seen heard smelled tasted or touched without interposing the self in other words contacting things directly we could say that life as a creative process and our life as our practice is in a sense about forgetting what we've previously learned. Meaning forgetting what we think we know about the subject. Which is actually a necessary step in seeing and knowing body-mind phenomena more directly and more clearly and responding appropriately. This so-called forgetting is what stops the mind from knowing in its habitual conditioned ways. And at this point then, one is confronted with the object itself. And one's usual way of knowing is arrested. The heart, the mind, is open, receptive, appreciative, able to connect and respond to the inner experience, be it a mental or physical phenomena, be it the tone, the shape, the texture, etc. And very important, connecting to its changing nature with a genuine quality of confidence and open-hearted authority. So what is it that keeps this open-minded, open-hearted being in the presence from happening? One uh, person's response to this question was, the fear of losing control.
I think that many people experience not knowing as a feeling dumb. But I have to say that some of the most extraordinary experiences that I've had in which truth was revealed to me all have had the quality of what we could call bearing witness or just simply being there, just simply being here with humility and a tremendous and yet relaxed interest, a very open-hearted, connected, mindful, and discerning attention, and no need to make meaning. In our practice, and in our life as our practice, until we can suspend the need for making meaning, we really can't experience direct revelation. We really can't experience liberating insight, wisdom. And I do know that it's not so easy to be so unarmed, meaning to be without our habitual ways and self-centered identification. Fear can sometimes leap up in us. And so we train the heart, we train the mind slowly and with great care and great kindness to see clearly and to let go. The poet Rilke exhorts us to return to things themselves. But the way to them can sometimes be quite difficult because we're faced with our self, our seemingly set and solid self. It seems that we're overtrained regarding ourselves. We're usually the very center of our attention. It's usually all about me. Consequently, it's very difficult to come and see as the Buddha invites us. It's very difficult to return to things themselves, beyond or underneath or without this notion of a self. Engaging in our practice, this creative process of our practice, with joyful interest and open-hearted mindfulness, is really the way towards freeing up honesty, authenticity, and energy, which creates the conditions that allow direct revelation of insight into the way of things. I've learned a lot from children in this arena. <clears throat> in my early 30s, I taught art as an, uh, in an alternative school for quite a number of years. <clears throat> the five to eight-year-olds loved painting. 
And sometimes I ask them to paint in relationship to a particular theme. But often it was just free expression painting. And one morning as I was walking around looking and commenting on the paintings that were in process and and, uh, those that were already finished, one little boy said to me, you always like all our paintings. How come? Well, it kind of stopped me in my tracks. This little boy noticed something and he asked the right question. Children do sometimes have a way of saying things that stop us in our tracks. And I thought, yes, I do. I do like, I always like their paintings. How come? It was a great question. Well, it was a long time ago, so I don't remember exactly what I said to him. But something about honesty and expressing from the inside, and how could I not feel anything but appreciation? I could ask questions and occasionally make suggestions, but there wasn't anything to dislike or anything to feel critical about because what each person painted was their honest expression in that moment. Well, this little boy listened, and he, he seemed to understand because he very vigorously shook his head up and down and he kind of beamed at me. So making a bit of a stretch and regarding this in relationship to our practice. As adults, can we be so unarmed in relationship to what occurs within us with the attitude of this is what's happening here right now. While at the same time, with honest interest, being mindful and seeing clearly with an open-hearted receptivity to the right answers that will inevitably show up to our perennial questions regarding the way towards being really, truly happy and at ease in this life. One of the creative endeavors that's been part of my life off and on over the years since I was in my early 20s is the making of portrait sculpture with a particular person being the live model for each piece of work. This work has been a deep and very powerful practice in and of itself, as well as a a metaphor of insight practice for me, particularly in relationship to the cultivation of mindfulness, investigation and discernment, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and wisdom, which are the second fa- seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment. So I'd like to just share a little bit of this as I, as I think it might be a useful illustration in the context of our uh, discussion this evening. In order to create a, a likeness of a person in clay, a tremendous 
depth of concentration and mindful investigation needs to take place ahead. It's shape, the neck and shoulders, the facial features. How to see it as a whole. Then know it both in its wholeness and in its particulars. So that the seeing and the knowing can be transferred through the eyes, mind, heart, and body, and out through the hands and fingers into the clay. A daunting and actually impossible task if one doesn't begin to see what one is looking at simply as hundreds, or actually maybe thousands, of relationships that actually change with each angle of seeing. And so the subject's head and face begins to break down into a series of relational forms, forms that exist only in relationship to each other, forms that exist only in spatial relationship to each other. There's no head, no face, no person as we ordinarily know it. There are just a series of relationships to be known. It's a very intimate process, much more so than if I keep looking at the whole form. The completely unique characteristics of the face in front of me become very clearly and deeply known, but not as any fixed or separate entity. And the universals of all human faces become known quite intimately. At the same time, the concepts of solidity, fixedness, separateness, lose their habitual potency. And actually, they quite thoroughly fall away in moments. So what is this nose, this eye, this chin? Any nose, any eye, any chin. Seeing and knowing through the microscope of an open-hearted and deeply connected mindful investigation from revolving angles moment after moment seeing and knowing the space between the inside corner of an eye in relationship to the downward slope of the eye's lower edge, in relationship to the bulging curvature of the eyeball as it rounds out to touch the outer edge and corner of the skin around the eye. And on and on and on. With all of this seeing and knowing, coming out of my fingers and forming the clay, little by little by little. And as though magically, a face emerges out of the clay, a face that bears the likeness and projects some of the quality of the liveliness of this human being sitting in front of me.
it's not so easy to render this creative process into words. So I, I hope that it's been at least somewhat communicated and at least somewhat helpful for you. As I mentioned, and as I'm sure that some of you are aware of, concentration and insight practice are in themselves an art, and in many ways very close to the creative process. During one particular time period, when I was deeply immersed in sculpture work, I went to see a film uh, at a theater. And I was quite struck that evening by all of the faces of all of the people in the lobby, each one having all the same equipment. (laughs) Noses and eyes and mouths and cheeks and chins and foreheads. And yet each person's face being totally unique, just based on the tiny nuances of how all the parts were interrelated. My awareness that evening, jumping back and forth, back and forth, seeing the diversity in the unity, or the one, and the unification, or the one, in the diversity. That evening at the movie theater, they weren't separate, at least for a few moments. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Ornament Sutra, which is revered as a great treasure of sensual imagery and considered to be the highest teaching of the Buddha in Chinese Mahayana Buddhism. There's a short section that elaborates on my uh, very, very brief and small experience that night uh, at the movie theater. And this is from the Sutra. The Bodhisattva sees the interdependent nature of all things, sees in one dharma all dharmas, sees in all dharmas the one dharma, sees the multiplicity in the one and the one in the multiplicity, sees the one in the immeasurable and the immeasurable in the one, and the immeasurable meaning the indescribable whole of life as it unfolds. And the sutra goes on. Birth and existence of all dharmas is of a changing nature and thus unreal and cannot touch the enlightened ones. The nature of all things quite naturally reveals itself. It's not hidden. We enter into the mystery through the intimacy of our practice, rather than staying at a distance, rather than staying separate from it. In very precise and sometimes minute ways, or at times through a much more spacious, less precise mode of mindfulness and investigation, we come to know the nature of things. Anything, all things, ordinary things. And for a moment, we touch into the absolute truth of the relative world 
and it makes a difference in how we live our life. Mindfulness investigation and discernment are our guides through what at times may feel like an impenetrable forest of experience. And as you each and all know well, life can be quite challenging and difficult at times. Practice can be challenging and difficult at times. It's not new news to any of you, I'm sure. Along the way, we find that it takes a deep willingness and a certain courage to traverse this path of awakening. People sometimes describe their experience at particular points along the path as feeling as though they're a spiritual warrior. And I think that at times many of us view experiences and view our life as a string of blessings or at times a string of curses. (laughs) Through our practice, through our life as our practice, we learn to not get caught up in attachment to the blessings or get caught up in aversion to the curses. As our practice takes deeper and deeper root, its blessings begin to permeate all corners of our life. Mindfulness and investigation of states grounded in interest and open-hearted, non-judgmental receptivity is our guide through what at times may feel like an impenetrable forest of experience. We can't expect or depend on something outside of our own mind and heart or someone else to do it for us. And again, the invitation from the Buddha is ehipasika, come and see. When we connect and see clearly, the next step is right in front of us. It's just one step at a time. So a story, a true story. One autumn morning uh, some years ago, I went for a day-long hike with a friend up into the mountains in the Taos Ski Valley, which is just outside of Taos, New Mexico, where I live. My hiking buddy uh, is a long-time Dharma practitioner, and so we like to hike in silence. And usually we walk alone, though not very far away from each other along the path. And often we speak together only during rest breaks or at lunchtime. Hiking days like this for me and my friend are some of our most treasured non-retreat practice times. There's a very deep and connected relationship through all of the sense doors to the surrounding world and our bodily sensations as well and the movement in our body and also to the feelings and all of the various states that come and go 
in the mind and in the heart as we take our time making our way up the trail. So this day, as we were wending our way through this particular Rocky Mountain landscape, two young people, quite young, maybe early 20s or late teens, came up behind us and they were moving really fast. Actually, they were almost running up the mountain. And they each had a small yellow plastic object in their hand, which they were uh, quite intently holding up and out in front of them. Well, as they passed us by, uh, we exchanged very cursory hellos, and I asked them what the yellow plastic object was. And they said, it's a GPS, as if um, I would, of course, know what that is. Uh, <laughs> this was long before GPSs, uh, or not so long, but before GPSs became so widely used. But these two people were in such a hurry, there was no opportunity to ask, well, what is a GPS? The friend who I was hiking with actually knew a little bit about it. And she said that it's an instrument that tells you where you are. Well, as soon as she said this, we both looked at each other with kind of amazement, and we we started to laugh. And we kind of laughed and laughed and laughed for a while. The experience really tickled our funny bone, we could say. Because that particular day, where my friend and I were, was being connected with and known over and over and over again in so many ways and on so many levels as we were slowly making our way up the mountain. The intermediary of a global positioning uh, system seemed so silly at that point and in that setting. And a poem by David Wagoner called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree, a bush, does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So again, ehipasika, come and see. Come and see for yourself. The Buddha, with his great clarity and compassion, spoke about what he called the nutriment for the arising development, fulfillment, and the perfection of the factor of investigation of states. 
he said that we must give a wise and careful attention to both beneficial and unbeneficial states. So beneficial states such as loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, as well as to the so-called hindrances, sleepiness, restlessness, the wanting mind, the aversive mind, the doubting mind. He also said it's essential that we give this wise and careful attention to states of suffering, to the cause of suffering itself, and to the end of suffering. And again and again, the Buddha directs us towards seeing and knowing the particular individual characteristics of beneficial or wholesome states, as well as seeing and knowing the individual characteristics of unwholesome states, unbeneficial states. And the Buddha again and again also directs us towards seeing and knowing the three universal characteristics of all states of body and mind. The essential unsatisfactoriness, the impermanent nature of all states, and the selfless, empty nature of all mental and bodily experiences. All of this, the Buddha tells us, is the primary nutriment for the arising, development, fulfillment, and perfection of the enlightenment factor of investigation. Investigation, clear discernment, is, the, is primarily what counters delusion, is primarily what counters ignorance. We're also told to ask appropriate questions and that it's helpful to reflect on the very real possibility of deep understanding. We're encouraged to associate with people who do have understanding and it's suggested we don't spend too much time with those who don't have understanding. The Buddha spoke in a very beautiful way about internal purification of the mind and heart as being, what he said, like the light of a lamp's flame that arises with a, a clean lamp bowl, wick, and oil as its support. And that bodily and mental formations become evident and clear to one who tries to comprehend them with what he called a purified base, meaning a mind, a heart that's cleansed through the ethical behavior, the virtue of sila, and the purification of the mind and heart that the development of metta, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, and concentration afford us. Investigation and clear discernment of bodily and mental states 
is a requisite for awakening, a requisite for the arising of wisdom. So in this light, the enlightenment factor of investigation is spoken about as the wisdom factor. And a quote from Yanagi, who was the Japanese philosopher and teacher of the way of tea. And he speaks, uh, he spoke about this in a very lucid and succinct way. He said, they saw. Before all else they saw. They were able to see. Ancient mysteries flew from this wellspring of seeing. The difference between the person with a mind unconsciously steeped in me, mine, and I, and one who lives, sees, and knows through a mind steeped in mindful awareness and investigation of states is that within the narrowness of a mind that's steeped in me, mine, and I, There's a very strong and sticky identification with all of the hopes and all of the fears that arise, which is a very painful place to live one's life from. When the mind, when the heart, is steeped in the factors of mindfulness and investigation, one isn't as often, or not even sometimes very often, caught or thrown off not very often ruffled or confused by inner and outer events. We see what is. We know it beyond its seeming appearances. We aren't caught nearly as often by all the hopes and all of the fears in relationship to the moment's experience. They come. We let them go as they naturally do anyway. Our practice affords us the great potential gift of not clinging, not being identified with and attached to experience all of the time. What is, is just what is. Moment to moment to moment, more and more often. The direct investigation and discrimination of states is what facilitates the deepest understanding. Otherwise, our understanding is based only on the intellect. It's really then just cerebral understanding or a kind of imaginary understanding. And as I'm sure you know, at least some of the time, it's impossible to think our way out of tension. It's impossible to think our way out of stress and confusion. It's impossible to think our way out of suffering. And it's impossible to think our way into really, truly letting go. We can't think our way to liberation. Awakening awakening is beyond and beneath 
the intellect. It's beyond or beneath concept. And so how can we possibly use concept to get us there? When insight is born, when understanding is born, it's deep and integrated and simple. It's cellular, as someone once described their experience to me. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj tells us, the mind, the thinking mind, is interested in what happens, while awareness, meaning a mindful and discerning presence, is interested in the mind, the heart. And then he goes on to say, the child is after the toy, but the mother watches the child, not the toy. With investigation, we move out of the dark and come into the light, the light of wisdom. And in reference to his own enlightenment, the Buddha said, the eye is born, knowledge is born, wisdom is born, Understanding was born. Light was born. As awakening beings, we're moving toward our inheritance from the Buddha by simply becoming a real human being. A real human being. A description that my, one of my Burmese teachers, Saida Upandita, used to say for one who is awake. And this is really the greatest gift that we can offer to this world, to become a real human being. So closing our exploration this evening with a poetic teaching from the Buddha. And it's one that I, I offered, I, I'm pretty sure I did, uh, early on in this month. <clears throat> but I'd like to offer it again uh, because it's, it's uh, really a good one from the Buddha. And the, it's called A Single Excellent Night. <clears throat> Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night. It is in her, it is in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. Let's sit quietly for just a moment.
may all of the wholesome energies and the fruits that manifest through our practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And we'll close our evening chanting the reflections. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.